Bryn, our oldest daughter, who had a birthday this week, has talked our whole family into watching a show on reality, a reality TV show. Imagine that, another one of them. On the History Channel, called Alone. Has anybody seen that, Alone, yet? Okay, a couple of you have seen it. Uh, here's what's happened. Ten people are taken to the northern extremity of Vancouver Island sometime in September and left there all alone. <laughs> Now, 10 people up in the northern extremities, they're separated by miles and miles from each other in a major water source, so they can't get to each other. So they are literally all alone. Uh, why? Why were they doing this? What's this show about? This show is about seeing who is the last of the 10 to survive alone, all by themselves. So it could go a week, it could go two weeks, it could go two months, it could go all year. It all depends on who's the last person standing. It's the classic man versus wild. It's a classic, not only man versus wild, but what's interesting is that it's almost like it's person versus themselves, self versus self. Because being all alone, you start realizing, they start realizing that they have to sit with themselves for a while, incredibly bored, other than trying to survive. And it's fascinating how not many people on the show can live with themselves. In fact, most people leave that show. I'm talking, I'm talking a sniper, decorated sniper, tough as you can get dude, just couldn't, in the end, live with himself that long. He had to do something, and he, he couldn't be with himself. It's fascinating. Uh, so northern, here's the catch, though. The winner receives $500,000, so that's why you stay, right? You can, you can get $500,000, so people gut it out until there's one person left. Northern Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, is the wettest place in North America. It rains 200 of the 365 days a year. In those few miles in the northern tip of this Vancouver Island is the home to 7,000 black bears, so you're going to see a black bear and grizzly bears. It's the home of 800 cougars. It's the home of thousands of wolves. In the whole island, there are 800,000. So imagine how many are up in there. I'm in the second season. And in the second season, there's this guy. And we're just going to call him Frank. Frank's a missionary. He's very outspoken about being a Christian. In fact, every time he says something, it's I'm a Christian this and I'm a Christian that. I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. It's kind of annoying. And I still haven't figured out whether I like him or not. Well, it's in the meat. We're into a week. We're just into a week, and he's not doing real well. He hasn't found a water source. He hasn't found a food source. So he's starving, and he's dehydrated. And he finally, greatly discouraged, he finally gets a fire going, and he's starting to boil some water so he can drink. And while he's boiling the water, he accidentally knocks the, he knocks the pot over and spills his water. Ah! And he just screams. And then he quickly shuts off the camera. And you're like, oh. And then the camera comes on. And you see this face get in there. And he goes, this is what he says. Well, at least I had the self-control not to cuss on camera. <laughs> okay. Now, just a side note. Sometimes it's very appropriate at times to cuss. That probably is one of the most appropriate times you should cuss, right? <laughs> Now, back to what he says. He goes, off camera, you would have been shocked. He's speaking to us in the camera. Off camera, you would have been shocked with what a good Christian guy like me said. And I went, did he really say that? 
Here's what we're looking at in 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11 would say to Frank, we're calling him Frank, you might be shocked. And good Christians all over the world might be shocked. In fact, unchurched people, irreligious people that are watching the show might even be shocked. In fact, everyone in the whole wide world could be shocked. But the Bible's not. The Bible's not shocked at all. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. First Kings 11, 1 through 14. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of God, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall, shall they with you. I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> For surely, surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite, 
He was of the royal house in Edom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you open our eyes, give clarity to our minds, realness to our hearts? As the psalmist said, Lord, we open wide our mouths. Would you fill them? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We might be shocked at sin, right? You might be shocked at your own sin. You might be shocked at your spouse's sin, your children's sin. You might be shocked at your friend's sin, your roommate's sin, your co-worker's sin. Uh, you might be shocked even at serious, the sin of serious Christians like pastors and church leaders and strong student leaders and even scholars, biblical scholars. We might be shocked at their sin. We might even be shocked at the culture's sin, <clears throat> the way it views and practices sex, the way it views and practices gender, the way it views and practices marriage, and anything else we scream at on the TV, right? We might be shocked, but the Bible isn't. The Bible's like a smelling salt. It's saying, hey, why are you shocked? The Bible wants to say, I want you to see reality. In fact, there's a guy named Jeremiah, and he's a prophet that comes along right after King Solomon, and he comes along in the same world that Solomon lives in, in the same world that Elijah is in. We're going to look at Elijah next week, but we're looking at two introductory sermons to the world of Elijah. And the world of Elijah is what Jeremiah walks into. And Jeremiah says this to anyone who will listen. He says, listen, I'm going to give you the number one scientific evidence for the existence of sin being active in your life. I'm going to give you the number one empirical reason, evidence, embodiment that you can know the active presence of sin in your life. Here it is. You can know that if you're shocked at sin, it's active in your life. Jeremiah calls this dark activity of sin, he calls it the deceitfulness of sin. Listen to what he says. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Did you catch it? Above all things. You cut open the heart and above all things in the cosmos, everything in the universe, Mount Everest, above that above any technological advance, above that, above any world superpower, above that, you open up the heart, and in its essence, above everything, it's deceptive. In its essence, it's a false prophet. In its essence, it spins off a view of reality that's not true. In its core, it's, it's lying. It's unreal. What does Jeremiah mean when he says, above all things, the heart is deceitful? Here's the answer. Here's what he means. He means that you are always the last to know that you're messed up. Sin is so powerful and so active. That the way it manifests its activity and its power is deceiving us in such a way that we're always the last to know that we're really messed up. Your roommate's going to know before you. Your spouse has always known before you. Your co-workers know before you. Your friends know before you. Your children know before you. We're always the last to know. And it's one of the most powerful works of sin above all things in the human heart. This is why we won't admit our addictions. 
Do you know how many reality TV shows are out there making bank on that? That we just are going to deny it. We're so good at denying it, we can't admit it. We just can't. We're going to do everything we can not to see it. And so they'll put these shows together where they get all their loved ones together, and all their loved ones are saying, is he, can we help him see that he's an alcoholic? Nope, he's not. Is she going to see that she's addicted to Adderall? Nope, she's not. Shows designed just for that because we're always the last to know we're really messed up. This is why a marriage breaks down and neither spouse admits it and neither spouse seeks help. We're always the last to know we're messed up. This is why a woman goes from man to man and she goes from unhealthy relationship to another unhealthy relationship thinking still that the answer is out there in another man. We're always the last to know we're messed up. This is why we draw lines or we make distinctions between them and us, between those folks and us folks. We think and we feel and we speak and communicate. We scream at our TVs. We blog. We act like there are others who are worse than us. Like somehow they got a greater dose of Adam in them than we did. That somehow they deserve to be accused and condemned and judged and abused and withholding of a relationship and to not have compassion and to, to not welcome and accept, right? We're always the last to know that we're messed up. And I, I debated, I said in the first service, so I'm going to say it here, I don't want to be misunderstood, but that's just the, that's just the way it goes. You, you take that chance. This is why there is a trillion-dollar industry today, pharmaceutically and psychiatrically, built around, almost counting on our horrible defense mechanisms that we design and we erect and construct in our life to keep us from seeing we're messed up. Now, human beings have been doing that for thousands of years. Thousands of years, we have these horrible self-defense mechanisms. We're always trying to keep ourselves, protect ourselves, construct amidst ourselves something to keep us from seeing what we're really like, something from really helping us understand ourselves, something for that. What's new today, what seems to be new today, is we've industrialized the horror of our self-mechanisms. We're making bank on it. We have this instinct to erect these self-defense mechanisms. Now, I know there's good medication, certainly. I know we need help. What I'm highlighting is we have within us this way of self-defending ourselves against the knowledge of ourself. And I think we've industrialized it a little bit. We're always the last to know that we're messed up. 1 Kings 11 is designed to help us. You know what it's designed to do? It's actually designed to make us less shocked and more healthy. Some of you are thinking, good night, you talk about sin like this, it's just going to make everybody depressed. And you know what the Bible says? The exact opposite. The Bible says that talking about sin and talking about what we're like and talking about who we are is actually freeing. 
and it actually lifts you up. It actually moves into reality and gives you hope. It's actually the opposite. If you want to see it, on, if you want to see it at work, go watch the alone. Watch, watch those folks live with themselves, and they can't. But what if you are able, I kept wanting to, I was yelling, yelling at the TV. Just admit it. You blew it with your kids. He just couldn't, he was just, it was eating him up. How was I a good father? Did I, and it just, if he would just have the freedom to admit, you did blow it. You did. Psychologically, that's healthy. Denying it and suppressing it and Fighting that reality is mental illness. We could say it this way. First Kings is designed to help us become less shocked and more holy. First I said healthy. And the reason why is this. The Bible uses those two realities interchangeably. Healing and holiness are used interchangeably. Holiness is a vocab word. Healing is an image used in the Bible all the time, and they mean the same thing. They're interchangeable. And the reason why the Bible does that is because when some of you hear what I just said, that 1 Kings 11 is designed to make you less shocked at sin and make you more healing or heal you, you hear it a certain way. But if I said this, to make you more holy, some of you heard that and you go, you just lost me. Why? You know why? Because you think holiness is what Frank is doing on alone. I'm a Christian this, and I'm a Christian that, and good Christians do this, and good Christians do that. Now, that's just annoying. I, hear me. <laughs> Please hear me. I can guarantee you this. If, if the Apostle Paul himself was alone with Frank on that island, he'd be annoyed with him. <laughs> whatever, day, whatever Frank is doing, it's not holiness. It's something, but it's not holiness. There we go, self-righteousness. <laughs> Others, when you hear 1 Kings 11 is designed to help you become less shocked and more holy, you think to yourself, hallelujah, you bet. I am so tired of you 20 percenters out there. It's time to get committed. It's time to get pure. It's time to obey. It's time to, it's time to address those sins out there in our culture and those sins at the church. I'm so glad you finally said it, Pastor. Perhaps. Perhaps you're right. But you know what you need to hear? You need to hear that holiness is about becoming human. It's about becoming more humane. It's about becoming a loving person. It's about living outside of yourself, and that means even your own holiness. It's living outside of yourself towards the great God in faith and towards people in love. Always. Holiness is finally becoming yourself. An intact image bearer. Do you know when Jesus set foot on this earth, 
It was the first time since the early days of Adam that a true human being walked the earth. And it was breathtaking. And it was astonishing. Everybody that was around him was marveling at him. Who is this? Who is this? This human being. They were attracted to him. They were drawn to him. People flocked to him. And please don't miss this. The only people that weren't, the only people that plotted against him were the holy people. The people shocked at sin. Well, shocked at sin in himself, not sin in others. They were quick to point out sin in others. 1 Kings 11 is designed to make us less shocked and more healthy or more holy. Here's how. So here's what it's going to do to us. And it's going to be very quick because you're wondering, when's he getting to the text? I know you are. That's what happens. You become a prophet when you preach for a while. Here's how this text is going to do it. It's going to get rid of your shallow view of sin and holiness. Just like that. This text is going to come to your shallow view of sin and holiness, and it's going to go, see, I told you, you got to get rid of it. You can't hold it after looking at this passage. You just can't do it. And here's the number one, you ready? The number one shallow view that needs to go. Here it is, you ready? Sin and holiness, here it is. This is what needs to go. Sin and holiness are simply matters of choice. That needs to go. Sin is a matter of choice. That needs to go. Holiness is a matter of choice. That needs to go. And don't miss this. Even if they're God-assisted choices, it needs to go. What are you doing? Well, let's look at the text. I'm going to give you two responses to this. I'm going to give you one from church history and then one from the text, and then we're done. Here's the one from church history. I want you to meet a British monk named Pelagius. He was very concerned about holiness. Very. In fact, he led the first worldwide holiness movement in the history of the church in the 400s. He was the most pot. He became famous and he became popular by making sin and holiness a matter of choice, a matter of making a right decision. This view swept the Roman Empire. It was so famous and so far reaching until another man entered the race. A man named Augustine. And all he did, and all his writings, I summed it down to this. Which is very dangerous to do, but I'm going to give it a shot. You ready? This is what he said that just rocked Pelagius, rocked what's called Pelagianism, and got it out of the church, and it was officially denounced in 529 A.D. at the Council of Orange. Here it is. You ready? My dear Pelagius, If sin is simply a matter of choosing, why does everybody choose? If holiness is simply a matter of choosing, then why doesn't everybody choose it? church history. 
Now let's meet King Solomon. Verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Verse 2. Solomon clung to these in love. Verse 3. He had 700 wives, that is princesses, princesses and 300 concubines. They turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Verse 5. For Solomon went after. The word went after means he was like running. He was like, who's the real fast sprinter ball? Yeah. It was him running a 100-yard dash. He went after it to the finish line. That's what this word means. Solomon ran after. He sprinted after. He broke the world record. He went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Verse 6, Solomon did what evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 7, Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, and on the mountain east of Jerusalem. You know what that is? That's the future site of the Mount of Olives. That's where Jesus will spend his last hours on earth before the cross. A place of high idolatry. Abomination is where Jesus spends his last hours. Can we be honest? I want to be so honest and I want to spell out exactly what's going on in this passage, but I know it might offend some of you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay? Solomon has what we might call today a sexual addiction. If Solomon slept with a different wife or concubine every night, it would take him two years and nine months to sleep with them all just once. Sin goes much deeper than a decision. Sin goes much deeper than making a bad choice or a good choice. Sin goes down to the roots of your being. Sin goes down to your heart. This passage mentions Solomon's heart five times. The Hebrew, if he wants to emphasize something, if he wants you to see something, he uses what's called repetition. And he uses heart over and over in such a way that it's actually awkward reading. Nobody talks that way. Nobody writes that way. And that's the point. I want you to see the heart of Solomon. I want you to see the heart of Solomon at the roots of his being. Something is wrong. Why is his heart mentioned five times? Because Solomon's trusts were all out of whack. His trusts were twisted and unreliable. Human beings are dependent human beings. Human beings by nature in their DNA is dependent. So we have to trust something or someone, and that's why we trust saviors. We trust lords. We have to. His trusts are so twisted that he's trusting beauty and sex to save him. But also his hopes are misplaced and unable. In other words, Hope is something big. When you hope in something, you're hoping in something that's massive. You have to hope in something that's able to carry the burden of your hope. So if you pick something that's not able to carry the burden of your hope, you get crushed. Solomon is hoping in things that are not big enough to carry the burden of his hope. Inevitably, he will be disappointed. Inevitably, he will despair. Solomon's loves are lusts and addictions. All his internal energy is self-seeking, self-absorbed, self-centered. All his internal energy is, I need, I need, I need, but I'm never filled. I'm always hungry. I'm always thirsty. 
Solomon's worship is warped and weird. Human beings are worshipers by nature. So that means if we don't worship God, it doesn't mean we stop worshiping. It just means we now will worship anything. Sin goes much deeper than our decisions. It goes down to the very roots of our being. William Faulkner, famous author, won the Nobel Prize. During his acceptance speech, he, gave, he gives a clue into what was the central motif of all his writings. That's pretty amazing. This is what he says. He says the central human drama is, what would you say it is? Real quick. The central human drama is, get it in your head. Here's what he says. The human heart in conflict with itself. Oh, that's breathtaking. All his books and all his characters, the central motif between the characters was ultimately the, their hearts in conflict with themselves. There's a guy named Mark Edmondson, a scholar who specializes in Gothic themes. He wrote an article defending the importance of Sigmund Freud's work. Sigmund Freud was an Australian neuroscientist, neurologist, and the founder of psychoanalysis, so much of what is done today. And he thinks that he needs to be defended. For some reason, I don't, I don't know why. I don't know what's going on out there in that world right now. But he, he thinks he needs to be. So he writes this. Despite outward appearances and despite our wishes to the contrary, we are not unified beings, he says. Because we both wish and oppose our own desires, our inner lives are in a constant state of civil war. Your heart, my heart, is in a constant state of civil war. Now, this guy's not a Christian. He's, I don't think he is. He doesn't profess to be. But he says this incredible. He gives a warning to all of us who will listen. He says, listen, there's a great danger out there. I'm like, okay. So I keep reading. He says, if we don't acknowledge the war that rages inside that state, that civil war, or the human conflict, the human heart in conflict with itself, if you're Faulkner, that war that rages inside, the push and pull of our desires, if we don't acknowledge it, we will become intolerably self-righteous. Us versus them. Sin goes much deeper than our choices. We have to get rid of our shallow notions of sin and our shallow no notions of holiness. Sin goes so much deeper than decisions, so much deeper than trust. It goes all the way down to the root of our being, our heart. Now, there's one last sinister thing we need to look at about sin, and it's not shallow. It's very deep. I want you to see, if you were able to read the whole text, I mean, that's what's so hard. These texts are so long, and nobody wants to read them all except maybe me and maybe my mom. That's probably about it. We're the only ones, right? But I want you to, I want you to try to see it. Read this text from beginning to end, chapter 11, from beginning to end sometime today, and you'll see it. So you're going to have to trust me. But do you see it, though? Do you see that the fall of the king leads to the fall of the kingdom? Do you see that? Do you see how this king has a fall that wrecks the kingdom? His sin is the epicenter of the earthquake that shakes the rest of Israel. In fact, this king and his sin ends up being the sin of the rest of the people. And in verse 14, we see another result of Solomon's sin, and it's very interesting. Do you see the adversary, that word adversary? There's going to be three adversaries that are going to be in this, this broken kingdom now. Because eventually the kingdom's going to tear into two kingdoms, and then it's going to 
The Syrians are going to take one away. The Babylonians are going to take the other. So this is the beginning of the end, and it happens right here in 11. And we need to know that if you're going to know about Elijah, because he's going to be alive during that time. Here's the literal translation of the adversary. A Satan is raised up against Solomon. Now, does any of this sound familiar? What we got here is an echo of another king who fell and wrecked the kingdom. We have a, a king called Adam who had this turning away from God, who committed the spiritual adultery against God and wrecked the whole world. What does this mean? What this means is this, is that sin is not a choice. Sin is not a bad decision. It may embody that. It may look like that. It may express itself that way. But the heart and nature of sin is not choice and not decision. The heart and nature of sin is a dark power that invaded the world long before Solomon got here. And the writer wants you to see that. So he mirrors the original fall of Adam and echoes it in the fall of King Solomon and the fall of Israel. So this means that our hearts, his heart, Israel's heart, had been taken captive by the dark power long before this stuff started happening in chapter 11. The dark power is greater than you are. It's greater than I am. It's greater than we are. So what this means is this. Here's the point. You can't choose your way out of the dominion of sin. You can't choose your way out of the dark power of sin. You can't make a decision and, and just get out of it. And you can't just make a decision and get into holiness. You can't just decide to be holy. If we think this way, if we have this shallow view of sin and holiness, then the Deceitfulness of sin is actively at work in our life. You can bet on it. Also, we'll do this. We'll look at others and we'll think and feel this. Well, you'll look at a different area of their life and an area of your life where you're doing well, and you'll think in the area that you're doing well, well, I've moved out of the dominion of sin. Why haven't they? Why do they struggle with that so much? I mean, if we're going to be honest, I, I do that. I don't understand how people struggle with addictions. Then I start looking at my addictions. Oh, but mine looks so good. <laughs> Self-discipline, can that be an addiction? Hard work. Why do I work all the time? Because I'm a hard worker. That's what you need to know. Let's just move on, please. All right, later in the story, y'all, there's a prophet that comes along. His name is Ahijah. And what he does, it's like, jo it's a kind of a throwback to Joseph. Joseph had that beautiful coat. Well, he has this beautiful new garment, and it's, it's of many colors. And he walks up to a guy that's going to be one of the adversaries in the kingdom. And to show his seriousness of it, Ahijah starts tearing to pieces his new garment. 
And you're like, why? And then he goes on to explain what he's doing, and what you end up realizing is that what he's doing is he's symbolizing what sin does. Sin tears you to pieces. It tears kingdoms to pieces. It tears relationships to pieces. It tears us psychologically to pieces. That's just what it does, and it only does that. It cannot not do that, ever. It can't change, ever. But here's where it gets really interesting. The writer could have picked a word for garment. There's a couple he could have chose, and you know the one he chose? Has the same consonants, the exact same consonants as Solomon's name. Oh, now this gets interesting. Sin is tearing Solomon to pieces and the kingdom. So you got to ask yourself, how do you get free from that? How does a captive to this dark power that makes its home in your heart, how do you get free from that? The clue's in the text. The clue is in the tearing of the pieces of the robe. The clue is in the death of a king. The clue is there. It's an artifact. You just got to keep digging. And then what you realize is that the only way out of the dominion of sin, the only way into another kingdom, in other words, if you want true holiness, stop worrying about making some stupid choice. We're talking about genuine holiness. We're talking about solid holiness. How do you get that kind of holiness? By making a choice, making a decision, the text says no. There's a, there's a whole other realm of holiness that we're talking about here, and the only way to get into it is by a better king invading the dominion of sin. And this better king doing the unthinkable, he submits himself to the tearing to pieces of sin. And while he's being torn to pieces like that garment, the captives are set free. And you enter into a realm of his holiness into a whole new kingdom and a whole new world. The Bible calls it a new creation. Now that's humane. That's human. So, get rid of your shallow views of sin and holiness. If Pelagius doesn't convince you, let King Solomon convince you. Only the cross can set you free from the dark power of sin. You can try all you want. You'll never. It's like, do you remember? Do you remember in? Do you remember Venom in, in Spider-Man? Do you remember how Venom took him and he kept trying to rip the Venom off him, but he couldn't? That's what you're doing. You're trying to pull yourself out of a swamp. You can't. But the moment it took it took the death of Jesus to kill sin and set you free. And the moment you trust in the death of Jesus, of his being torn to pieces from you, is the moment you transfer into this new kingdom. And guess what? 
The only way you grow and have actual solid humanness about you, holiness about you, is that cross going in a continual way to your heart, to the roots of your heart. And that's the only way there's areas of your life called sin that do continually get killed. Willpower will not kill it. It's going to take the cross for the rest of your life. 